Now, as you remember, last week when we looked at chapter 51, verses 1 through 8, we really heard an answer uh, to what we read in chapter 50, verse 4. There, the servant of the Lord Jesus said how he has given the ear of the one who hears, one who has learned from God's word, and he is able to speak a word to sustain him who is weary. And so in chapter 51, verses 1 through 8, where we looked at last week, we saw exactly what the Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord, speaks in order to sustain the weary people. And of course, the weary people that Isaiah was writing to were the people who had suffered and who were suffering both national and personal crises, having been forcibly removed from their homes, who have lost everything, and who carried in their heart the knowledge that It was their disobedience to the Lord, their own sins that brought upon them these calamities and tragedies. And so they were the people who who felt as though they were at the end of the road, that they had no future left. But the servant of the Lord spoke words that sustained them. And first, in verses 1 through 8, the servant of the Lord reminded that God, their God, created a nation of people from one old barren couple, Abraham and Sarah. And if God can do that, then there is no difficulties, no challenges that can hinder God's plan to bless his people. And we also saw how we face no risk when we place our whole trust in the servant of the Lord. We do not need a plan B. We do not need a contingency plan. We can place all of our trust and put all of our lives in his hand, and there is no risk because the salvation that the servant of the Lord brings is forever, and it will never expire. There's nothing that you and I can do. Once the servant of the Lord says, it is done, it is done. Once he accomplishes our salvation, there's nothing that you and I can do to undo that. Not only so, his salvation is righteous. And because it is righteous, God will never reject it. There is no risk to making Jesus our only Savior. And so we also saw because of that, we can live without fear. The world and its troubles quickly pass away. But Jesus endures, and our safety in him endures. So that's what we saw in the last eight verses. And today, in verses 9 through 11, we see how we should be responding to such good news. And the first thing, the first response, is that we pray to Jesus. We pray to Jesus. Notice verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm, of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is the agency, is the means by which God delivers his people. And as we have seen clearly from the context of Isaiah, and not only from Isaiah, but from all of God's word, there is no other agency and there is no other means by which 
God delivers His people and blesses His people except through the servant of the Lord. You see, when Isaiah represents the godly people of Zion saying, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, that arm of the Lord, the, the means by which God saves and blesses, that's the servant of the Lord. And of course, we saw and we have been seeing in chapter 50, it was the servant of the Lord who, who speaks to sustain him who is weary. And now Zion, God's chosen people, they pray to him, to the servant of the Lord, to the arm of the Lord, and they say, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And this raises a really interesting question, doesn't it? Is it ever right to pray to anyone but to God? Is it ever allowed in the Bible for people to raise their prayers to anyone but the Lord? And that is why if you are willing to listen, the statement that follows is really startling. Awake, O arm of the Lord, awake, as in days of old, the generations long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now, that's a bit of a cryptic sentence. And what's going on is that Rahab is the name of the female sea monster goddess, the god of chaos in the Babylonian cult. And this is something that, that people of Israel were intimately familiar with as they had been exiled to Babylon, as they were living under their culture. And the Babylonian religion has this scheme where Rahab, the, the, the sea monster, it's the goddess of chaos, is conquered by the Babylonian god Marduk. And when Marduk conquers Rahab, slaughters Rahab, Marduk brings order and peace. So that's the Babylonian mythology. But what Isaiah is getting at, he's not saying that that the such things as Marduk and Rahab, the gods of Babylonian myths, exist. That's not what Isaiah is saying. But what Isaiah is saying is this. What the Babylonians merely play-acted in their make-believe stories that Marduk, their creator god, subdued that the goddess of a chaos, the sea monster to bring peace. What the Babylonians merely play-acted in their make-believe stories, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob actually did. You see, the Lord, He showed His power and mastery over the sea and delivered Israel out of Egypt. He parted the deep waters, made his people cross as on dry land. And so what the Babylonians merely daydreamed about in their stories, that was history for Israel. And so from then on, 
This defeated sea monster, Rahab, it became sort of a nickname for Egypt in the Bible. So often when you read addresses to Rahab, that's the context. This, uh, this mythological goddess that was defeated by Marduk, who was subdued, that name was uh, put on Egypt as a telling reminder that that is what God actually did. But listen, who was it that cut Rahab in pieces and pierced the dragon? And Isaiah says, it was the arm of the Lord. So the servant of the Lord was the one who cut Rahab in pieces and pierced the dragon. So if you look at verse 10, Isaiah says, was it not you who dried up the sea? Who? the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? In other words, the servant of the Lord, who will come to save Zion from Babylon, the servant of the Lord who will come to bring blessing and peace and redemption to God's people, that servant of the Lord is also the Lord who came to save Israel from Egypt. And so that answers the question, doesn't it? Is it ever right to pray to anyone but to God? How is it that Isaiah and the godly people of Zion are lifting up their prayers to the servant of the Lord? Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And the answer is that the servant of the Lord is both at once the one that the Lord sends to accomplish his purpose. And on the other hand, he is at the same time the Lord himself, the Lord, uh, Lord's servant who will come to save his people from the Babylon is the Lord of the Exodus who led his people out of Egypt. That's why we pray. That's why God's people during Isaiah's time pray to the servant of the Lord, and that's why we pray to Jesus. The second response to the wonderful news that we hear is to recognize the dynamic between promise and prayer. Promise and prayer. So note this. God speaks his promises to his people, and his people speak their prayers back to Jesus. That's the movement. Promises come down from heaven, from God, and God's people send up their prayers to Jesus and in Jesus' name. And so you remember from the last eight verses how the servant of the Lord, he urged his people to hear him. So verse 1, listen to me, he said. And again in verse 4, he said, give attention to me. And then in verse 7, again, he said, listen to me. And guess what? They did. They did listen to him. They heard him. And they realized that God's grace and power means that they have a future. 
And they knew their night was passing and that a new day was dawning for them. And that's why we read in verse 11, we hear them confessing, we hear them acknowledging and declaring, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, notice the movement. Promises come down from God. Prayers go up to Jesus. And the crushed and the bowed-down people, their hearts are raised up with joy and faith. Now, loved ones, that is the dynamic of the Christian life. I think we tend to think about our spiritual warfare maybe too exclusively in terms of our struggles against the world and the devil. Now, that is certainly true. Our spiritual battle, our spiritual warfare is waged against the world and the devil. That is certainly true. But what is also true is that we also fight our spiritual battles in the trenches of everyday struggles with our fear, with our doubt, with our uncertainty, with our confusion. And in the trenches of our everyday struggles, we have to fight every day to hear God's promises to us and embrace them by leaning on Jesus. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. The promises come to us, and we embrace them by looking to Jesus. Not, when, not just when the civil government throws us in the jail for believing in Jesus. Not, because, not only when we are ostracized for being believers, but in the trenches of everyday struggle when we are confused, when we are fearful, when we are in doubt, we, we embrace the promises of God, the God who knows no such thing as a hindrance or challenge, the God who is forever satisfied with what Jesus has done to accept us as his beloved children, the God who gives us a future and an eternity. That's what we cling to, what we hold on to, and we lean on Jesus. So that is to say, when God makes his promises known, our part is to pray, let your will be done. In fact, we can't wait for his will to be done. That's why we hear this urgent prayer, awake, awake, put on strength. Now, of course, that does not mean that God is sleeping. God never slumbers. And Jesus never needs to be prompted, and he never needs to be prodded to do what is right. But, but the believing saints cannot wait 
to see God's will accomplished. The believing saints cannot wait until God's promises are made true. And that is why when God makes his promises known to his people, our part is to say, yes, Lord, let your will be done today, quickly, soon. And so we pray with a sense of urgency. And so in that constant movement of promises that come down from heaven and our prayers that go up to him, in that constant movement is where we grow. That's where we find stability. That's where we find peace. And that's where we find hope. So loved ones, remember that, would you? That movement, that, that, that dynamic, promises from God, our prayers to him. He promises and we say, yes, let your will be done quickly. Every day we struggle with so many things. And that's where we fight our spiritual battles. That's where we lean on Jesus. Thirdly and finally, the right way to respond to the good news is to hope and rejoice in the new exodus, new exodus. So look at verse 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea? Isaiah says, the servant of the Lord. He was the Lord of the first exodus. He's the one who parted the sea and led his people as on dry land. And that Lord of the first exodus is also the Lord of the second and a greater exodus. Just as God delivered Israel out of Egypt, God will deliver Zion from Babylon. There is a second exodus coming. But notice this too. The description of the second exodus far surpasses what the homecoming of the exiles experienced. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Because you realize the migration of the Jewish people out of Babylon back to Palestine did not in and of itself bring about everlasting joy, nor did it chase away every sorrow and every sighing. So the way that the second exodus is described is clear. That the descriptions do not completely fit the return of the exiles from Babylon. And so there is something that is left unfulfilled. Something that comes true only later. Because the second and the greater exodus is not an earthly migration of people. The second and the greater exodus is rather the act that will bring everlasting joy, that will chase away sorrow and sighing. That new and greater exodus is the Lord Jesus 
subduing the chaos of sin and death. And that is what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. And notice what Isaiah says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Now, whenever you encounter the ransom language, it's the language of uh, making a payment. And whenever you come across the language of ransom in the Bible, it does not mean that God made a payment to some other party who held legal ownership of us. Now, in the past, some people... uh, looked at the ransom language and wrongly, incorrectly thought that God had to make a payment to the devil because the devil had legal ownership over people. That's not what is being said. The ransom language in the Bible is not saying that God had to make a payment to a a third party. God owes nothing to anyone. (laughs) But rather, the ransom language is highlighting the great price that had to be paid in order to set us free from bondage. And the ransom language is saying that the price that needed to be paid was so great and so high that no one but God could have paid that great price. And that price was the life of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is where, this is where it becomes so powerful and profoundly comforting for us. Because if we are honest, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We often, out of habit and without much thinking, we ask people, how are you? And you know how people answer, oh, I'm fine. And you know what that means when people say they're fine? It means they're frustrated, irritated, they're neurotic, and they're exhausted. But we hide all of that. Why? Because maybe we are, maybe we're just too tired, too exhausted to rehearse all that we are struggling with. Maybe we are too ashamed to let people know that we are struggling. We're too guarded. And so when people say, hey, how are you? We say, fine, and we hope to move on. But the truth of the matter is, is that our lives are often very hard. And what makes that even worse is that our lives often seem so meaningless and so worthless. And our suffering and our humble stations in life all tend to reinforce that, that nagging sensation that we are really insignificant to God. Because if we were really significant to Him, why isn't He more present? If we were really important to Him, why does He seem to leave us alone? And why does He not answer when we call upon Him? You know, there are these things in our lives that constantly nag at us. And they tell us, you know, you're, you're just not that valuable. Your life is really isn't meaningful. You're worthless. You're insignificant. 
And that's what we need to remember, that you have been ransomed with a great price. For you were ransomed not with money, not with gold or silver. You were ransomed with the very blood and the life of God's only begotten Son. And it is remembering that you have been ransomed at such a price that you realize the truth breaks through and you realize if I have been ransomed with such a great price, how can I still think that my life doesn't matter to God? If I have been ransomed with such a great price, how can I still think that God thinks of me as an insignificant nothing, that my life has no meaning? And that is why it is as we think about the fact that we have been ransomed at such a great price that we find in Jesus everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Do you see that, loved ones? You have been ransomed with the very blood and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why you can be sure that your Father cares deeply and intimately about you. That your life is not meaningless, for He did not waste the blood and the life of His Son on something that means nothing. Now, it is true, outwardly, we are weak. Outwardly, we are humble, and outwardly, we are insignificant. And it's exactly as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. And it's as if you took something beautiful and precious and valuable and kept it or put it inside a plain vessel made out of mud. <laughs> and so outwardly, we are that. Nothing beautiful, nothing all too precious, but that's only outwardly speaking, because what is hidden beneath and behind the jar of clay is something that Jesus died to redeem something that is of immeasurable value and worth to God. So loved ones, in your trenches of daily struggles, believe the promises. Lean on Jesus. You are God's delight and you are God's treasure. And he will keep you today, and he will keep you forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank you for showing us how we may respond to your wonderful news of grace. And so, gladly and willingly, we receive your promises, and we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we can hardly describe, hardly accept that 
that Jesus shed his blood and gave up his life for us. Sometimes, Lord, this gift is so overwhelming that we don't know what to do with it. Oh, Father, teach us. Teach us to rejoice in it. Teach us to be grateful for it. And teach us to be confident because of it. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.